Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, lawsuits and protests, they're still underway. In fact, there was a silent vigil earlier today at the Capitol. Now, all this after George Governor Brian Kemp signed an overhaul of the state's election system into law last week. We are going to continue to vote, and you all just making us get out here in the streets and do more. Right. You're requiring us to have two pieces ID, and the people will have two pieces ID. You, you're going to get beat at your own game. And we'll hear how other states are considering similar legislation. That's coming up in just a moment. But first this, the head of the Atlanta-based Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. Rochelle Linsky, says she's urging governors not to loosen up COVID-19 restrictions too quickly. In a press conference today, Dr. Walensky warned the U.S. may see another wave of COVID-19 cases if states open up too quickly. When I first started at CDC about two months ago, I made a promise to you. I would tell you the truth, even if it was not the news we wanted to hear. Now is one of those times when I have to share the truth and I have to hope and trust you will listen. I'm going to pause here. I'm going to lose the script and I'm going to reflect on the recurring feeling I have of impending doom. We have so much to look forward to, so much promise and potential of where we are and so much reason for hope. But right now I'm scared. Dr. Walensky says she plans to meet with governors tomorrow. Not sure Brian Kemp will be among those. Now, this comes after Governor Kemp announced plans to relax some of the COVID-19 related public health rules here in Georgia. Now, Kemp stated just last week, quote, loosening these restrictions is the next critical step in that process. And it signals an even bigger light at the end of the tunnel. I'm incredibly optimistic about where we are headed as a state, which seemed like a constant stream of bad news a year ago has been replaced with hope and optimism, close quote. Governor Kemp is expected to, maybe through executive order, loosen these restrictions on April 1st, which is this Thursday. Meanwhile, the seven-day average of new cases in Georgia is holding steady since January. This according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, yesterday, there are about 912 new cases reported here in the state. This brings Georgia's total number of coronavirus cases confirmed since last March to 849,607 confirmed cases. 16,487 Georgians have died due to the virus. And the total number of hospitalizations since all of this began, 58,498 Georgians. Now, on to the other big news here in the state. It's down to a couple of days for state lawmakers to pass bills. Wednesday is sine die. We'll have more on what that really means in just a moment. From changes to the Georgia Special Needs Scholarship Act to the budget and all the other measures in between. Join me now, as they always do, to discuss this. Our WABE politics reporters, Emma Hurt 
and Emil Moffitt. Emma and Emil, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Rose, as always. Can't believe we're at right. the end now. Hey, oh, Rose. Yeah. Hey, you guys excited? <laughs> so excited. <laughs> There's still a lot of time for crazy to happen, so Emil? not in the clear. Emil, you kind of silent there, brother. Are you, <laughs> you, ex- you excited? I am excited. It's the calm, calm before the storm. All right. Well, Emil, I'm going to stay with you for a moment. The calm before the storm, the storm, the significance of this day for those who may not know. Tell them about it. Well, it's, you know, on, on Wednesday, that'll be the, the, the final day of the 40 day session. Now, this is the first year of the, the biennium. So we will uh, have a, a chance for some of these bills to come back mm-hmm. uh, again next year. So even if things don't get passed, there's still an opportunity. Uh, but there are also some bills that people really had high hopes for um, to, to kind of get into place uh, as soon as possible. So those uh, that don't get passed by Wednesday will have to be put off for another year. Uh, but there certainly has been no shortage of news uh, this year at the state capitol. Emma, I'm going to start with you on this one. How would you describe this year, this legislative session compared to obviously last year? Because in a sense, we're notably it's the second session within a pandemic. But there was a lot more that was able to be done this session than last time. Yeah, I mean, last year, the session was cut in half, right, because of the pandemic, and the first half was kind of normal. And then the second bit during the summer was really chaotic and strange, because nobody quite knew what was up and what was down pandemic wise. And this session, you know, I think we've all, we all have become more accustomed to masks and and testing and and the, the weekly testing that lawmakers and staff have had to do seems to have prevented a major outbreak. At least no one has found out about one if there is, but that data is not um, being shared fully. But I will I will say that they they were able to do, they've been able to pass a lot of legislation, not a lot of the um, ceremonial resolution type things that bring groups to the Capitol, as mm-hmm. we've talked about, but bills were moving. It just was all a lot of it happening behind closed doors in terms of the lobbying, because not everyone was in the Capitol at all times. Mm-hmm. Emil, what about you uh, when you compare this session to the last? Well, it's been all about voting. You know, there wasn't a ton of talk. Even uh, part of the session last year happened after the we saw the events with the primaries. There were some hearings regarding voting last year uh, in June at the end of the session. Uh, but this particular session has been focused um, uh, for the large part on voting and on last year's elections. And, and we saw the uh, the bill, uh, big omnibus bill passed and signed into law last Thursday. Mm-hmm. And that's really been the focus. It's really taken a lot of the, the oxygen out of uh, a lot of other things that have been uh, going on here at the Capitol. Emil, are you noticing that among the state lawmakers, uh, you, you said taking the oxygen out, uh, you think folks are just really ready to, to pass as many bills as they can and just kind of get this week over with because of all what's taken place leading up to last week's signing of Senate Bill 202? Yeah, it was almost a little uh, anticlimactic, uh, if you will, uh, that, you know, we usually see the big, you know, the big bill come down to the the last day or, you know, the last few hours. And there are still some very important things to get done before Wednesday, including uh, the budget for the upcoming fiscal year and, and a few other measures as well. Um, but but you can tell that there is kind of a, a sign that, um, that, that the big uh, legislation, the most controversial legislation to come out of this session 
uh, has already been signed into law last Thursday. We saw some uh, kind of repercussions of all the events that went on last Thursday uh, here at the Capitol. Um, there's still a lot of talk about it here this morning, and so I don't think it's going to be going away anytime soon. Well, and it's a symptom. Yeah, it's a symptom, really, of the circus that this law has become. This national media, the national media attention, mm-hmm. and Republican leadership just kind of was were at their wits' end with it. They felt like they had come to a compromise, and they wanted to just get this thing done and and hope that the news cycle will move beyond them. Um, sort of a cynical way of looking at it, but for now, it doesn't seem to have. You know, the the national attention is persisting and Democrats are certainly not going to let up. And, you know, the implications of this going forward are extreme when we talk about 2022 Mm -hmm. and Georgia politics in the future. I mean, this is going to give Democrats just another example in their minds of of, um, proof that Republicans are vote suppressors. And um, so the dynamic will just deepen between the two parties over voting. And I'll get in deep into that uh, in just a moment here, too. And Emma, you've been following reactions to the voting legislation. I think at least one lawsuit has already been filed by three voting rights groups. I believe it was New Georgia Project. Uh, what, else, what else are you hearing in terms of legal challenges? Do we expect to see more lawsuits filed? There was, there was one other one just filed by the NAACP. So those are two major suits. Mm-hmm. I'm not expecting any other big ones like that. Um, someone said to me, I think two is enough. But, um, you know, the, the fallout, the political fallout, like I mentioned, is going to continue um, si- simultaneous to the, to the mm-hmm. legal fallout. So we'll be looking to see whether there's an injunction. Does the law get held up by the court as Mm -hmm. it's sorting through the lawsuit? And then there's also some fallout, I think, related to the business community's role here, because there's a lot of pressure. There are some calls for boycotts of of Atlanta-based companies and Georgia companies Mm -hmm. saying they didn't do enough to really speak out against the law. They say that they did some, but the, the statements from the companies have been kind of down the middle, and I think Democrats in particular are, are wanting more from from corporations who are kind of in the middle. So that's something else that I'll be watching. Um, yeah, I saw some interesting social media comments related to Delta and Delta Airlines here, of course, in, in Georgia and, and Coca-Cola. So we will all be watching that. Let's talk about some other measures here that have yet to pass. Now, there's Senate. Now, there's this. Emil, for us, I think you're, you're covering this. Let's get down to the odds. Let's get down to the odds of this sports betting or gambling measure. You see how I did that, Emil? I threw that in there. Odds. It's very, <laughs> I like your, your, you have a way with words, Russ. That's what I do, Emil. Uh, where does this stand? How likely is this to, to pass? Well, we've kind of gone through several iterations uh, throughout the course of this 40-day session. Uh, at first, it looked like uh, sports betting would just be able to be conveniently, nicely wrapped into the into the Georgia lottery. It wouldn't need a constitutional amendment, and we could have people placing bets on their on their phones for Atlanta United games or Braves games within you know a few months. But that has all come down to uh, come kind of ground down to a halt, hmm. uh, kind of toward the middle of the session. Uh, uh, lawmakers realized that they would, in fact, need a constitutional amendment just to make it uh, cleaner and and not have as many loose ends, legally speaking. Mm -hmm. So they decided to pursue that. 
And then that actually, that Senate resolution that would call for the ballot referendum, the constitutional amendment, um, that actually passed in the Senate. Uh, but there is still uh, not, it's still not clear if there are enough votes to pass it in the House. And so it has not gotten a vote in the House. And that's one of the bills we'll be watching in the final couple of days here is mm-hmm. to see um, if they can get enough votes to pass it. And again, it has to pass two thirds to be able to get on onto a ballot for 2022 as far as the constitutional amendment. So if those votes are there, uh, then then we could see it come back up again. But if they're not, then we'll have to wait until next year uh, to figure out if sports betting will will go ahead. Uh, now, Senate Bill 47, uh, which deals with the state's special education voucher program. What do we know about this measure here? Emma or Emil? Well, that's a, you know, it's a measure that, uh, yeah, it's it's a measure that's still, you know, under consideration now. And there's, uh, there's always been the long term debate over, um, you know, whether, you know, vouchers and, and private schools, um, you know, take away that that sort of funding from the public school system. And that's uh, been kind of a, uh, an eternal debate. Um, and it's one that that you have a kind of a different part, uh, different uh, views depending on the party and depending on the urban and rural situations. Um, so that's one that will continue to be debated uh, in the next couple of days. And we'll see whether that uh, ends up passing uh, before things, uh, the final gavel comes down on Wednesday. And of course, there is something that, that they have to pass, which is the budget. What's the latest on this? Yeah, right now the yeah the House and, and Senate uh, both um, the Senate passed its final version, but now the House has to agree uh, to the changes. And there are a few differences here and there. Um, overall, the the budget puts about sixty percent restores about sixty percent of the funding back into um, education. And that's where they have put the bulk of the money uh, back in from the cuts that we saw last year. Um, some opponents say that's not enough, um, but uh, but that's what has been put back in. And again, it's a budget that relies heavily uh, for the COVID response and COVID recovery on billions and billions of federal dollars. So Georgia is definitely on the receiving end of billions of federal dollars, and that helps kind of smooth things out with the budget going forward. But there's still this um, this back and forth between the House and the Senate to get the final version done. And Emma, b- before we wrap up, what are you going to be paying attention to other than I know you've been following the all the, the opposition to the Senate Bill 202 that was signed into law. What are you going to be paying attention to these next couple of days? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of like where mischief can happen really quickly, where uh, things can get shoved into bills last minute that may not really make sense with the bill. So there's one new bill that was to um, audit tax credits and do a review of tax credits and their worth for state taxpayers. And now the House has amended that bill to add in extra tax credits on top of the review language. Mm. So that's something we're going to be watching. There's a bill that would expand, um, that would institute reciprocity for gun licenses. So allow people from other states with gun licenses to come in and legally have the gun in Georgia which is, you know, the timing after Atlanta spa shootings yeah. is is tough um, for some lawmakers. And then I do want to highlight this morning, one bit of bipartisan good news um, is that there has been final passage of three weeks of paid parental leave for all state employees. Some 250,000 people, including teachers, 
And that, that was something that stalled last year and they made it through. So there was no paid parental leave and now there's three weeks. Oh, that's definitely good news. And we should note, hey, I just found this out that uh, now that folks can go to a restaurant and order mixed drinks to go. Just figure hey, out right. that another, <laughs> another takeaway from the from the pandemic and, and restaurants and businesses. Yeah. That's their argument is that, hey, we've had to change the way of doing business because people uh, want to take takeouts. And if we want to be able to recover from this pandemic, we need to be able to continue doing that for uh, for the foreseeable future to try to make up some of the losses that they had suffered uh, during the pandemic. All right, uh, Emil. What's up there, with the? There are bipartisan wait. issues still. <laughs> yes, when it comes to, <laughs> never mind. I'm not going to say that joke. Uh, Emil, uh, I know also that you are watching something to do with daylight saving times. Uh, what, what's up this? Yeah, there have actually been competing bills um, on uh, in the House and the Senate. Um, both of them want to do away with the switch switching between uh, you know uh, daylight time and standard time. But the problem is houses have passed different versions. One wants to be on standard time the whole year. The other wants to be on daylight time the whole year. Uh, And so (laughs) we'll see how that works out in the end. But I guess a compromise is not to switch back and forth because that's what we have right now. Which I'm curious, Emil, and which Emma, which would you prefer? (laughs) I kind of like it how it is right now. I don't mind. I don't mind the switch. You back and forth. Oh, controversial! I know. Controversial, Emil. <laughs> I say that's. I mean, that's indicative of something about the state legislature, which is yeah. that while we talk a lot about the differences between Democrats and Republicans, sometimes the biggest differences are between the House and the Senate. <laughs> <laughs> As my father would say, "Pick something and stick with it." I don't know what that means, but just. Pick something. Uh, Emil and Emma, you all get ready for sign and die. Have your sneakers on. WAB, WABE reporters, Emma Hurt and Emil Moffitt, thank you both for taking time. I really appreciate it. Hopefully, if you're not too tired, we will check back with you all the morning after sign and die. Sounds good, Absolutely. Rose. Absolutely. Don't be afraid to come down and join us. Oh, yeah. I'm going to let We'd y'all love to have, have it. No, I put in my time, <laughs> Emma. <laughs> you all do such a great job. <laughs> Take care. Thanks for having us, Rose. Thanks. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. A little bit of history before our next guest joins us. On March 15, 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson addressed a joint session of Congress. Johnson's speech will be a week after Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama. Of course, that's when civil rights marchers were attacked by Alabama State Troopers on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Our fathers believed that 
if this noble view of the rights of man was to flourish, it must be rooted in democracy, the most basic right of all was the right to choose your own leaders. It really rests on his right to be treated as a man equal in opportunity to all others. It says that he shall share in freedom. He shall choose his leaders, educate his children, provide for his family according to his ability and his merits as a human being. To apply any other test, to deny a man his hopes because of his color or race or his religion or the place of his birth is not only to do injustice, it is to deny America and to dishonor the dead who gave their lives for American freedom. President Lyndon B. Johnson speaking to a joint session of Congress on March 15, 1965. He was referring to the Voting Rights Act. And months later, Johnson would sign the act into law as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and other civil rights leaders were in attendance. Fast forward to the night of March 25th last week. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signs a controversial overhaul of our state's voting system into law. SB 202 also secures all ballot drop boxes around the clock, speeds up processing to ensure quicker election results, requires security paper to allow for authentication of ballots, and allows the bipartisan state election board to have more oversight over counties who failed to follow state election law. The following morning, Georgia Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock. And what we have witnessed today is a desperate attempt to lock out and squeeze the people out of their own democracy. And in this effort, in this case, they're literally being locked down. The people are being locked down and locked out of their own democracy. Yes. But this effort to silence the voices of Georgians who stood up in a historic election in November and January will not stand. Well, across the nation, more than 40 states have proposed and in Georgia's case passed measures cited as restrictive voting laws. The Brennan Center for Justice is housed at the New York University Law School, and the center has been tracking all of this. And we've been speaking with Eliza Schwerenbecker. She serves as counsel in the democracy program at the Brennan Center. She's been joining us for a couple of months now. We really appreciate it. She joins us again. Eliza, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me back, Rose. You know, we've been talking about what we called then proposed legislation here in Georgia. Now we have it signed into law, 100 pages. Uh, I don't know if you need to read the whole 100 pages, but uh, your response to this measure being passed. Well, I have read all 100 pages, and it is an omnibus bill that does quite a number of things, which were introduced in various other bills throughout the legislative session. This bill is the Frankenstein version, combining some of the worst provisions that we've seen introduced up until this point. 
Um, it does things like require a photocopy of ID or other kind of ID to apply for an absentee ballot. It limits Dropbox accessibility. It bars election officials from affirmatively sending out ballot applications. It even goes so far as to criminalize the act of giving snacks and drinks to voters waiting in long lines at the polls. You refer this refer to this as the Frankenstein of the measures. When you compare this to all the others throughout the, across the nation, is this the one? Is this the, the the big one that really, really sort of characterizes what you all have been saying are restrictive laws here as it relates to voting? Is this the big one? I guess so to speak. This is the biggest one yet. It is certainly the worst and largest of the restrictive voting bills that has been passed and signed into law. And as you all have just talked about, the law is already being challenged in two um, lawsuits in federal court. There are other omnibus bills floating around in other state houses across the country, particularly Texas. So unfortunately, Georgia is not alone in that other states are also trying to suppress voters' access to the ballot. Um, But absolutely, this is the worst we've seen yet. Governor Kemp has said, look, this is also expanding early voting in some counties, which makes it more expansive than restrictive. Your thoughts on that? There are a couple of provisions in the bill that make it easier to vote in very narrow circumstances. Um, for example, the, the early voting provision that you just mentioned, there's also a provision that requires uh, precincts that had long lines, long lines of over an hour in the previous general election to either split up the precinct or to provide more resources to the precinct so voters aren't going to be waiting in such long lines. Hmm. So there are a handful of provisions that are helpful to voters. But on balance, unquestionably, this bill is much more restrictive than it is expansive. Um, And I think that is the consensus, perhaps only with the exception of Governor Kemp. You know, there's been two lawsuits filed. When we talk about a legal challenge to this law, um, and if you are, and I know you all are, or you stay out of, try to stay out of some of this, but for these voting rights groups, what do they need to prove that this law is unconstitutional? Well, both of the lawsuits that have been brought to date raise, they each raise a constitutional challenge to the right to vote. Mm -hmm. And they also raise a challenge under the Voting Rights Act, alleging that these certain provisions are going to discriminate, particularly against black voters in Georgia. So the burden is on the plaintiffs to show that there has been an undue burden placed on the right to vote. And also that these provisions are going to have a discriminatory effect on certain racial minorities in Georgia. Um, But that's what these provisions of the Constitution and the Voting Rights Act are designed to do, which is to protect the right to vote and protect the right of racial minorities, including black voters, to be able to vote free from racial discrimination. If you just joined us, I'm joined by Eliza Swearenberger. She's a counsel. She serves as counsel in the democracy program at the Brennan Center for Justice. I want to go back then to 2013 for a moment, because, of course, that is the Shelby v. Holder Supreme Court decision, which ruled the federal preclearance for specific states was unconstitutional, meaning no longer did some states like Georgia need to have approval before enacting voting changes. Is it fair to say that because of that? When, when that was gutted, as people have called it, 
This is where we are now. I believe I read where you all back then said this is you saw this on the horizon coming that states and some states immediately after decisions started implementing voter ID requirements and things of that nature. But you all said, I think, back in 2013 that this was going to be on the horizon. We would see this down the road. Absolutely. I think the gutting of the preclearance regime under the Voting Rights Act is you know, has led directly to this voter suppressive bill passing and getting enacted in Georgia. And presciently in 2013, Justice Ginsburg wrote in her dissent to that Shelby County decision, and I paraphrase, getting rid of preclearance now is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. Effectively, she was saying, when preclearance is working, that doesn't mean that there's no racial discrimination in voting. It just Mm -hmm. means this law is effectively stopping states from discriminating. And we are now seeing exactly what she predicted, which is that when you take that preclearance regime away, states with a history of racial discrimination in voting are going to once again enact discriminatory provisions. And now this sets the stage for what many are calling a showdown in Congress. Senate Democrats are looking to pass a federal election reform bill. We all know this is the For the People Act. I want to talk about a few, a few key components there because one is what they call to modernize voter registration. Can you take that further for our listeners? What does that mean? Yeah, so the For the People Act, H.R. 1 and S. 1, would make a number of uh amendments to voter registration for federal elections. Those would include automatic voter registration, something Georgia already does, election day registration, online voter registration so that voters could fill out their forms and submit it online. But effectively, as the whole, the For the People Act would make it easier for all Americans to get registered to vote and stay registered to vote because the federal bill also has protections against flawed and faulty purges, something that Georgians know all too well about. There's something else here which is very interesting because it would strengthen the mail voting systems. Now, someone listening says, well, but Georgia's already has a law. So if this were to pass, would all of these components, no pun intended, trump whatever the states have, have passed here, states like Georgia? Well, federal election law is, in fact, supreme over state election law with respect to federal elections. So, for example, the states that don't already have automatic voter registration, which is not Georgia, Georgia already has that provision, Mm -hmm. states that don't have automatic voter registration would have to have it for federal elections because the federal law is supreme. Uh, The The For the People Act also includes uh, provisions about voter ID and provisions about drop boxes. So the federal law would override any provisions to the contrary in Georgia law, including in SB 202, and and sort of push back and mitigate against the worst effects of both SB 202 and many of the restrictive bills that we are seeing advance across the country. And then finally, there's one more I want to get to, Eliza, and that is to restore the Voting Rights Act. Are we talking about those measures that have been gutted already? Because wouldn't that mean that, it would that could that overturn something the Supreme Court has already ruled on? What's what's the deal with this? So when the Supreme Court ruled in 2013 that to effectively gut the preclearance regime, what they did was they actually said the formula for deciding which states and jurisdictions have to go through the preclearance process 
that formula was not constitutional, mm -hmm. but they did object per se to the idea of preclearance. So what the voting, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act would do is set up a new formula for determining which states and jurisdictions have to go through the preclearance process based on fact gathering that has been done and is being done across the country, demonstrating racial discrimination in voting that still exists today in many places across the country. Let's look at some other states for a moment before I let you go. Uh, what other states are you all paying attention to that may have maybe not the Frankenstein of a measure as you refer to as Senate Bill 202, but what other, other states are you paying attention to? I think Texas is absolutely on our watch list. There are a number of restrictive bills that are advancing through the legislature there, including bills that would uh, unduly criminalize voters and election officials, uh, implement faulty purges, um, all kinds of restrictions on, uh, like Georgia, sending out mail ballots or mail ballot applications affirmatively. So Texas is absolutely a state of concern. Arizona, likewise, we're seeing lots of restrictive bills, and th some of those bills are, in fact, advancing through the state house. One bill of particular concern in Arizona is a bill that would allow people to get removed from the permanent early voting list there much more easily than has been done historically. So effectively, just making it harder for people to get their absentee ballots and to and to be in the loop on absentee voting going forward. I want to get your, your thoughts on this, too, your insight, rather, because when we talk about all these challenges and, and lawsuits and for some, the the strategy is to get it to the Supreme Court. But you and I both know sometimes they get kicked back to lower courts. Uh, how do you see many of these big measures? Will it eventually, you think, have to come down to the Supreme Court and given the makeup? You know, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, one thing we know is that the Supreme Court has not been a friend to voters, at least over the last several years. And, you know, we were just discussing the 2013 Shelby County decision. Um, so I think it depends what's going to happen in the lower courts, what exactly the lower court rulings are. I wouldn't be surprised if the, those decisions get appealed to the uh, federal courts of appeal. So in Georgia, that would be the 11th Circuit. Mm -hmm. um, but I think litigants on both sides of the V on, you know, plaintiffs and defendants are strategic about what cases they seek to have the Supreme Court weigh in on. And it, it really just depends on the kind of rulings that we see from the lower courts. Um, but I think it would not shock me if the Supreme Court ultimately weighed in on some of the bills that we are seeing uh, advance. We shall stay tuned. Elijah Swearenbecker, she serves as the counsel in the, the democracy program at the Brennan Just Center for Justice. We'll include a link to the center's latest report on our website, as we always do. Elijah, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate you being able to educate our listeners and, and inform them of what's taking place, not only here in Georgia, but across the nation. Thank you. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. A bit of some breaking news. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the New York developer Tishman Spire, we believe it's how you say it, is in talks or has agreed to buy West End Mall. So um, often we don't tell folks to check out our competitors, but we will tell you that story is online at the AJC. And, of course, we'll have more tomorrow again. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, New York developer Tishman Spire to buy West End Mall.
As you heard earlier on WABE with our politics reporters Emma Hurt and Emil Moffitt, this is signing die week for the General Assembly and with dozens of those measures that we talked about this session and the most recent bill signed into law by Governor Brian Kemp, it's been another eventful legislative session. Joining me now to offer his insight, longtime award-winning politics reporter, host of WABE's Political Breakfast, I call him D, y'all call him Dennis, Dennis O'Hare. D, great to have you back. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, Rose. Thanks for having me. Let's begin here, D. Just how <laughs> animated are those days leading up to signing die and, of course, the, the big day itself? You've covered so many of these. Oh, well, it, it kind of goes in stages. Um, the When you get to, like, uh, signing die comes on legislative day 40. When you get to about day 35, everyone in both parties is thoroughly sick of each other and <laughs> can get it can get pretty nasty. Yeah. Then when you get to uh, particularly the last day, things happen so quickly. So many things that have been left to the last minute, either accidentally or on purpose, can get mixed together. Bills that were pretty much purely technical can suddenly be torn apart and new language inserted which would do major things and actually that's what happened with the voting bill mm-hmm. um the bill the version that passed was a fairly technical bill in the senate when it started it, and then senate bill 202 turned into the bill we see now because the original language was stripped out and new language was added mm-hmm. so there's a lot of that going on and a lot of committees suddenly meeting and reporting out bills, House and Senate negotiating committees, the conference committees, they have to work out differences Mm -hmm. between two versions of the same bill, a House version and a Senate version. And there are different rules in the chambers as to whether bills can be added Mm -hmm. to the agenda on the last day. The Senate is a lot more limited on what it can do. The House, the Rules Committee, which sets the agenda, can Mm -hmm. get together any hour of the day or night before the final gavel and suddenly pop something new onto the agenda. And we have seen that. Uh, Dennis, is there a particular signy die of years past that stands out to you? <laughs> there are two. Uh, one, I, I can't remember which year it was, but um, it was just crazy. Um, there was a lot going on and there was a bill. <clears throat> I don't even remember what it was about, but then State Representative David Lucas from Macon, a Democrat who's mm-hmm. now a state senator, he didn't like whatever the bill was, and the clock was ticking down to midnight, and he had the floor. And normally, uh, the speaker would just call for a vote on adjournment, but uh, Representative Lucas was on a roll, and uh, he was thundering away. It was a real stem winder, and so the speaker just hit the final gavel and yelled sunny die in the middle of <laughs> in the middle of David Lucas's speech and when everybody left the floor Lucas was still talking though that was that was one uh, another one which uh, it was back in 2007 mm-hmm. the Republicans had control of the legislature and the governor's mansion but they weren't always getting along and uh, the fault lines were, uh, some of the fault lines were between then Speaker Glenn Richardson and then Governor Sonny Perdue. Ah. And they had a little dispute over tax cut legislation. And um, at the end, after he had hit the final gavel, uh, Glenn Richardson 
came down from the podium, and uh, I can't remember whether he did his running exit, which is traditional for mm -hmm. speakers, run out of the chamber, and then came back, or whether he headed straight for uh, our camera, and he, uh, I was working for Channel 11 at the time, and he went off on Governor Purdue and said he showed his backside. Those were the words <laughs> of Glenn Richardson. He was furious. Yeah. That was a pretty memorable one, yeah, too. Yeah, Glenn Richardson. There are a lot of memories with Glenn Richardson, and we'll there just are. leave those at that. Dennis, <laughs> yes, when was the last time, though, the Democrats held the majority in the state legislature? Well, they held the, they held the House on—well, excuse me, let me back up. They held the Senate— until 2003, the beginning of that session, 2003, after the 2002 elections. You might remember Republican Sonny Perdue won the race for governor. He mm -hmm. beat Democratic incumbent Roy Barnes. Barnes. Democrats in those elections kept control of both the House and the Senate. But in the days between the election and the convening of the legislature at the start of 2003, Republicans got three Democratic state senators to switch parties. Mm -hmm. So that gave the GOP the Senate and the governor's mansion. And then in 2004, Republicans took the House as well. So it was a kind of a gradual process of them assuming full control of state government. You know, Dennis, this legislative session, of course, was dominated by the voting and elections related bills. Can you recall other times right after a presidential election where either the Democrats or Republicans were moving specific legislation at a pace, at a pace like what we just saw here? And I'm, I'm imagining maybe right after Bush defeated, well, it took some time, but right after yeah. Bush defeated Gore. Well, there was a huge battle, and it wasn't so much speed, really. It was just the amount of maneuvering involved. There was a huge battle after the 2000 redistricting, mm. um, and that went up to that election. And uh, Democrats had put together in the early 2000s multi-member districts where you'd have this giant district covering, you know, what would normally be a couple of the districts we see now. And so you could live in a district where you had several members of the House, and this was an effort to preserve the Democratic majority. But those members of the House might not, not necessarily live where you did. Mm -hmm. um, so it was it, there were big legal fights about it. Um, the Republicans charged that Democrats were packing Republican voters into little bitty districts and then mm -hmm. spreading black voters out so that they could elect more Democrats in more districts. There was a huge legal battle over that, and that went on for quite a long time. Well, Dennis, now we're hearing that all of this will be sort of influential when it comes to the 2022 little statewide elections. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's start with the Democrats. How will this party use this moment regarding Senate Bill 202, which is now law, to galvanize their base? And then we'll move over to the Republicans. Well, they, they will. I think that they are hoping that their base is already galvanized over this because mm -hmm. of the attention that it's gotten. They also have not only a potential gubernatorial candidate, but someone who has been in the front lines of the voting fight, Stacey Abrams, um, and they will fundraise off of this. Um, both parties will, but the Democrats already have 
in Stacey Abrams, a proven fundraiser, whether she runs for governor or not, uh, they will fundraise hugely off of this. And I think that's one reason why you saw former Senator Kelly Leffler try to put together mm -hmm. an organization to kind of look like Fair Fight, which Stacey Abrams founded, you know, partly to raise money because this is going to be an enormous fight. It's going to attract a lot of outside money, mm -hmm. no matter who the candidates are for governor. But Dennis, does this mean now that Stacey, you know, she listens to this program, Stacey mm -hmm. Abrams has, has to now run for governor? I think she can do whatever she wants. I mean, I haven't spoken with her lately. Um, but people want her to. Oh, there's yeah. going to be a lot of push on her to run. And there would have been, even if this bill hadn't come up, mm -hmm. because of what happened in 2018, the feeling that um, uh, among a lot of Democrats, that because of some of the voting rules that have been put in place by then Secretary of State Brian Kemp, that the election of 2018 wasn't exactly uh, under fair rules. And so, uh, yeah, there's been push on Stacey Abrams to come back and run ever since that 2018 election. Well, let's talk about the Republicans, because what will be interesting is that will they all make up by 2022? You know, <laughs> I mean, if you're if you're Mark Butler, I don't know if he's going to seek reelection. I asked him. Mm -hmm. He was, you know, I don't know that question. But, you know, or Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, I mean, do the Republicans need to have a, you know, kumbaya moment and come together and get ready for 2022? Because there's been some tension. Oh, a little, quite a bit. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know whether they feel like they have to. Uh, certainly when you have a primary, even if it's a nasty one, there it's a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. You can certainly have divisions in your party that won't heal and will hurt you in the general election. But on the other hand, you raise a lot of money, you ha you get a lot of attention, your primary candidates do. And there are already primary candidates challenging Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. Mm -hmm. There are primary challengers announced for Brad Raffensperger. Former Congressman Doug Collins, who is very popular with the base, particularly the uh, Trump supporters in the GOP, He's still out there. Question is what he will do. He has options. Mm -hmm. So um, the Republicans have to decide, A, whether they can heal their divisions, and B, whether they are able to uh, keep enough of their coalition together to win offices statewide again. And that depends on the very demographic changes that we're seeing and the pace of those changes. Mm -hmm. A lot of people moving into the state from places where they've normally voted Democratic. And that's the reverse of what happened back when we were talking about a few minutes ago in mm -hmm. 2000. We saw people moving into the state. It was growing just like it is now. And a lot of the new voters then tended to vote Republican. So. It's going to be really fascinating. The Republicans have a little three-dimensional chess to play here. Well, and before we say goodbye, there will be one major election, of course, that is toward the end of this year, and that is here in the city of Atlanta. Uh, any surprises yet in terms of who's out there running for mayor right now? It's just Felicia Moore, but also everybody wants to be city council president. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there's there's a whole host of those. And, and I think one question going in was whether Mary Norwood, who's run a couple of times, 
would run for mayor. It appears she's running for city council. I got uh, an email from her campaign. Um, and she didn't email me. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, um, but one thing that has happened, and it, it just recently, and it might be significant in terms of who might run for mayor, Mayor Bottoms had not raised a lot of money so far for her reelection um, up until the just recently, at least compared to what Mayor Kasim Reed had raised before mm -hmm. his reelection campaign. In other words, at the same point in their in their reelection bids, but of course President Biden That's held this. Yeah big fundraiser mm -hmm. for her. A virtual. So that's laying down a marker really for any potential challengers. Now obviously Felicia Moore had probably already considered that when she got in. So it'll be interesting to see now who decides to jump in or say, well, yeah, I was thinking about it, but maybe not. And by the way, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, uh, we expect her to join us this week on Closer Look. So a lot yeah. to talk about. You got time for a real quick story or are you short of time here is this is this a dennis o'hare no this is political a, this memory goes, this goes <laughs> no this goes to what uh emil and emma were talking to you about about where the fault lines sometimes lie on signing die instead of between the parties go ahead you got about yeah. 32 seconds okay real quick this story came from molly ivins the late ah. uh, late political columnist uh but the story goes that a republican house speaker was chatting with one of his Democratic colleagues after a long day, and a young Republican freshman came in, saw him chatting, went up to him and said, Mr. Speaker, why are you talking to that Democrat? Don't you know they're the enemy? And the Speaker said, son, you haven't been here very long. You need to know this. The Democrats are not our enemy. The Democrats are our opposition. Hmm. The Senate is the enemy. <laughs> Did it? Uh, WABE Political Breakfast host, Dennis O'Hare, as always. Good to speak with you, Dean. <laughs> Great to talk to you, Rose. Thanks. That is classic. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Don't forget, Closer Look now, the rebroadcast at 7 p.m. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.